Welcome to Misfits on Vinyl. My name is Spencer Strykert. I am an actor, comedian, and one of your hosts. My name is Aaron. I am one of your hosts. And an actor. And yeah. that intro song is uh, super cool. I'm yeah. super glad that we have it. It is by The Vitos, mm-hmm. who are a band out of uh, Vancouver and Toronto. They they like split their time between the two. They're signed with 604 Records right now. Nice. Uh, which was started by Chad Kruger. Uh, so super fucking crazy. That is cool. Uh, they uh, fun fact about the Vitos. So I saw them at Rockin' for Dollars like five years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, they were honestly the best band of the night. They were like, and they were just coming through town. Nice. They uh, they have such a cool like on stage energy. Their lead singer is just so fucking hype. Uh, and they did a cover of Shania Twain's "Man I Feel Like a Woman," <laughs> and it was the fucking best. So uh, <clears throat> yeah, they. Uh, I've been a fan of theirs for a few years. They got some really fucking cool songs, and they just uh, they sent us that, which like out of the blue, out of it the was blue, really cool. Like I was not expecting anything like that, no, ever to happen. And, and like honestly, maybe one of the nicest things someone's ever done for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it honestly made me feel very special. Yeah, uh, my heart grew like four sizes, maybe five. <laughs> Um, I'm actually going in to get a surgery coming up to check. <laughs> okay, no, but it was really special. I really appreciate it. And they sent us a nice little email and uh, yeah. said they're fans of the show. And I wasn't familiar with their music, but I've been listening to it since. And, yeah, Dude, uh, I'm I'm really stoked. It's I'm so how fucking, fucking cool. Oh God, I I can't believe it. Like for so many reasons. Like for one, I was like that was one of those moments where I'm like. Like, to find out that they were also fans of us was, like, a mm. cool moment because I was like, oh, I'm such a fan of you guys. Like, oh, this is so cool. Um, but, yeah, no, uh, I wanted to uh, give a couple of plugs because they got a, an album coming out uh, in March. You can pre-order the vinyl right now. I'm doing that this week. Uh, we're going to talk about it on the podcast. We're going to probably fucking have them on Pl- the podcast. Plug the shit out we're of them. Plug Holy the fuck. shit out of them. Uh, they got uh, they got a new single out right now called Pressure. It's fucking great. Mm-hmm. Uh, their single just before that, Boom Shakalaka, is one of my favorite. I really enjoy that, actually. Oh That's one God. of the first ones. I think it's the top one on their Spotify. Yeah. That's one of the first songs I listened to after we got the got the new the new intro song. Oh, and I was my like, God. It's fucking really good. It's so good. Yeah. No, I was, I was really impressed. Boom Shakalaka. Like I'm gonna hit you like a psycho. <laughs> I don't even know if that's the lyric. <laughs> I don't think it is, but I was ready to dance. I was, I was. You know what though? Like, uh, uh perfect stranger. Also a great mm-hmm. fucking track. It's an older one, but like, I, I, that is a recommendation for me from me. Uh, because who doesn't like a good song about a blowjob? <laughs> I also really, <laughs> really like their music videos. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. I was looking at, I was watching, looking through the, their YouTube and stuff like that. They have some great music videos. They seem like a, a fun group to be around. Yeah, they're, um, uh, they're, they're like, they're, they're kind of like that, that big goofy energy, and I fucking yeah, love. I it. like it too. But one thing, I, you said they split their time through between Toronto and Vancouver. That sounds fucking expensive, dude. Yeah, well, dude, they lived in Toronto in a van for like a year. Okay, that doesn't sound as expensive. Yeah, no, but no. But they they literally were like sounds to, cold. to get good at like uh doing live shows. They just did live shows every night and lived out of a van. That's cool. And I was like that's pretty dope. That's like a stand-up way of doing things. Nah, that's nice. That's super cool. dug it. So, shout out to the Vitos. Check them out on Instagram, Spotify, mm-hmm. YouTube. Order their album. Uh, we're gonna probably have them on the podcast. Yeah, and I mean, soon. they. Uh, you can spell it by it's uh, V I D O S. Nice. Vitos. The with the T H E with the T H E at the start. Uh, it's you know, it, like we said, it made us feel very special, but it's also inspired us to you know maybe pump out a little more content for our intro and do some. Do some more things. We got a couple things in the works. We've been working on a new logo, which I'm sure will come out yep, soon. And think about doing intros and maybe doing some YouTube videos down the road. And so. uh, and we got some stickers on the way too. Yes, we got, sir. We got stickers with both our OG logo and the new logo because we got we got. Uh, well, I'm not gonna spoil the logo yet, the new one, because I feel like we gotta fucking like when we have the stickers. That's yeah, what we fucking, we'll do a big reveal. We'll do a big reveal. But uh, but there's there's a reason why we got two, because there's there's circle and squares. I think it's gonna be fucking mm-hmm. super sick. Uh, I was in Peace River this last weekend. We got some new listeners in Peace River. Nice. Uh, and uh, yeah, I got rid of all of my all of the stickers that I had Fuck ordered. Fuck yeah, dude! So uh, there's we got we got some listeners out of Peace River now. Um, <clears throat> those shows were super fucking fun. Mm-hmm. Very weird uh, because I was not expecting that. I went to the Peace River Museum Ooh. during the day. What was that like? 
It was fun. Yeah. Uh, I love my favorite thing to do when I go to like small towns is go to a museum because mm-hmm. I'm like, what the fuck is there to learn about this place? Uh, I learned about this boat and this is like the funniest <laughs> thing. So, so there used to be a boat called the D.A. Thomas. Okay. And it was originally built for like hauling like coal and all this shit mm-hmm. up and down the Peace River. And then they were like, ah, you know what? This would actually work way better as like a luxury like steamboat. So they converted it and it had like, you know, all these like private bedrooms and like a parlor and like, uh, you know, like there was all these dances that would go on and stuff and it could accommodate like 300 people. Oh, fuck. Yeah. And they had that going up and down the Peace River, except it was too big for the Peace River and it kept getting fucking stuck on the sandbars and then they'd have to go and get somebody to tow it out with a fucking tugboat. <laughs> so it was a stationary boat. It was a stationary yeah. boat. And then they just destroyed it. They didn't even like leave it docked somewhere. No. They were just like, fuck this. And it cost a lot of money too. Yeah, that's kind of like... Uh, Back in Newfoundland, there's a place called Harbor Grace, and there's literally a boat that's been stuck in the harbor for, like, <laughs> fucking, like, 80 years, dude. It's called the Kyle. It's been stuck in the fucking harbor, and you drive, you drive in Harbor Grace, and there's literally just a giant boat, like, half-tilted right oh, in the harbor. Oh, like, fuck, that is Rusting funny. and fucking, yeah. Dude, that's so funny. Like, the barnacles underneath that thing mm-hmm. must be fucking huge. It's, like, one of the main attractions to go to Harbor Grace. <laughs> so, like, if Peace River's looking for a new tourism plan, like, just stick a boat in the river and leave it there. Yeah, take that over your three bridges. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and your museum and your museum it was also the christmas parade when we were there which Ooh. i thought was funny because i was opening for connor christmas and so then connor went on stage and he was like ah oh, thank you guys for throwing a parade for me <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> um all right so we beer? gotta we gotta crack our beers yeah. first uh as is tradition uh, so this is the dirty hipster it's a rice lager mm. uh, i don't think we've had this one before have we uh, we had a different rice lager when uh, Brittany Lysing was from on. our unofficial official sponsor. sponsor of the podcast, Cabin Brewing. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Is it no. a collab, Sam? Yeah, it's with uh, Routine, which is a kind of hipster hygiene company. Like they do all organic like deodorants and soaps. So, oh, so I could use this to wash my balls? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say there's soap in this. Deodorant called Dirty Hipster, Ooh. and it's got the same packaging, and it's really nice. It's like a charcoal. I feel like Dirty Hipster is an oxymoron. Because, like, I'm a hipster and I shower twice a week. Well, it's all about, like, if you shampoo your hair too much, bro, it gets, like, you know, a little too dry. You get dandruff. That's true. You know? So just don't bathe at all. I had a, I had a, I had a friend recently say uh, that uh, they, one of their family members uh, quit wearing deodorant and everything and mm. shampoo and all of that. And uh, they smell fucking horrible. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. It really doesn't. <laughs> All right. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. All right. Oh, that was Ooh. a nice saucy one. Good All right. Clink. So before we get into the pod, uh, Aaron's got something to talk Yeah. About. <laughs> so, like, I have mentioned it a handful of times. And, you know, Kanye West. <laughs> uh, it's difficult for me to say, but, you know, I can no longer say I love Kanye West. And for anybody, I'm sure everybody knows, but people that aren't following, he, he's a Nazi. He's a fucking uh, Nazi. It's kind of spoiled, like, his entire discography for really me. Really fucked up black skinhead for me. Yeah, it ruined everything for me, honestly. <laughs> uh, it's really um, it's really sad, and it's tough to see, you know, not that I would say, like, he's a role model, but I looked up, to, or, like, I looked up to him, but... You know, someone that you've listened to his music and been a fan of. And, like, certain things in the past, like, yeah, he's done crazy-ass shit and said crazy-ass things. Yeah. Um, but never to this <clears throat> extreme level. Um, well, there's also a difference between, like, jumping up on stage and ripping a 16-year-old's award out of her yeah. hand. And uh, fucking... Uh, uh, Promoting genocide. Yeah. That, yeah. That, that's where it's like there's there's two sides to it. And especially, like... It's bad when Alex Jones is the voice of reason I know, to somebody. <laughs> like it, it, like watching that made me realize, like, oh, Alex finally figured out what it's like when he's being interviewed by Joe Rogan. <laughs> like he's just like he has to be like, no, stop saying that. Well, like, when the guy that is saying that the government is turning the frogs gay thinks your ideas <laughs> are a little fucking crazy, I think you've crossed a line. Um, so. In closing, fuck Kanye West. I can no longer listen to Kanye West the same. It's been a really hard loss for me. No, I I feel you because like I mean when I was in uh, when I was like graduation came out when I was uh, uh, fuck I would have been in like grade seven and uh, like that was like 
you know, a soundtrack to a lot of my youth. Uh, same with like 808s and Heartbreaks and Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, you know. Mm. Uh, it's really sad that uh, now I'm like, I, I've been like, as I've been walking around, like I'll be listening to Spotify, right? And I've had to like, uh, like be like, well, unlike this one, like well, I'm just putting on my I like. Was the, I was in the top 5% of Kanye West oh, listeners no. on my Spotify wrapped. Oh, yeah. No. So this is a really tough loss for me. Like the stretch from my Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy to probably the life of pablo like i have so much rotation in that little span of his career and then even donda i really like jesus this king can fuck off too but <laughs> yeah it's it's sad so in closing like i said fuck kanye west i can no longer support kanye west he's no longer my boy yeah so. yeah yeah i I yeah, guess we're swifties from now i guess from now uh, on going forward i guess we're i guess you could say that we are now nay Instead of yay, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are now yay. <laughs> okay, so uh yeah, so that 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 all makes sense. Uh I I feel like one thing that we totally forgot to mention um mm. because we touched on it briefly at the start of the episode but uh, cuz Aaron's an actor and yes. uh, and so well, you 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 wanted to tell you warned me you're going to talk about this. I did. Yeah. So uh so here's the thing. So uh, a friend of the podcast, uh, uh, Kaylee Reggett, she has a show right now at Lunchbox Theater in Calgary. Mm-hmm. If you haven't, uh, go check it out. It actually is super fun. It's called Home for the Holidays. Uh, I've seen it twice now. Nice. I saw it on opening. I got industry tickets. And there you they go. Just gave, gave me free tickets, and then Siobhan and I went last night. Mm-hmm. Um, uh Really fun, really funny, uh, good for the whole family. Like it's it's uh, and and like it's something where like when you say good for the whole family. Everyone actually will enjoy it. Yeah. It's not like, oh, yeah, it's a kid's show or, oh, yeah, it's fucking, you know, like it actually is a really good show. Um, I can confirm this. You can confirm this because Aaron originated the role of Nick <laughs> in the in the original production of it before it was a musical. So we're going through my history as, a, as an actor. This was my first university credit. I didn't even know this was going on until I saw your story. Because like, I'm not really on social media or anything like that. But I have Facebook because I have to use it for work. And Spencer posted a, a story about going to the show. Yeah, I did that when I was in, <laughs> when I was in my first year of university. I actually probably have a good photo of the original cast holding up like we used to have. A, you remember we had like a movie poster? Yeah, yeah. Made. Yeah. So once again, this is <laughs> one of my roles. This is my second. That was my second biggest role behind behind the uh, whole Jon Snow thing that's going on right now. That's so. true. Which we still can't talk about. But no. when we can, I'm so excited to talk about it. <laughs> I'm. I really want that to just be clipped. Like, I just want that one thing to be clipped, and then that's on TMZ. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's really happening. Like, it, it, well, it is. So It's like one of those things, like, I, I have a LinkedIn, and I put a podcast host on my LinkedIn. Like, we've, we haven't made a fucking dollar. But I, <laughs> <laughs> I put it in as one of my jobs. <laughs> so I think we've all actually lost money doing yeah, this. Yeah, I think we've made any money between the beers and the... I mean, Sam already had the equipment, but the beers and the coffees yep. and the fucking stickers. The stickers, and, yeah. and, uh, which, I mean, in all fairness, though, uh, going to make that up in the future. Because yeah. uh, uh, when, uh, when we get... You know, once we become the number one English-speaking music history podcast in Canada, as well as <laughs> there Chile, go. there you go. Uh, then, then we will have all of the dollar. Yeah, no, we got, we did get a really lucrative offer from Spotify, like similar to Joe Rogan. Yeah, so he got 110 million. We got 110 pennies. It's true. <laughs> was our offer. So that's like what dollar ten. Yeah, it's pretty good. And, and you know what? That's better than Spotify has ever paid me for my comedy yeah. albums. And so. they're not going to delete any of our episodes. No. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> our our Kanye West episode and our Alex Jones episode is going to stay on. So. <laughs> oh fucking hell! I I uh uh God. Okay. Yeah. You know what? Um. <laughs> Our dollar ten our Spotify dollar ten Spotify offer. <laughs> uh, to be clear, it was we have to pay them a dollar yeah, ten. Yeah, yeah, they're yeah, not yeah. gonna pay us. Uh, yeah. Our our offer was uh, in order for you to have your content on our platform. Please pay us. You actually have to pay us. Yeah. You're terrible and we hate you. And it's a dollar ten a minute. So <laughs> our podcasts are going to get shorter, honestly, because we don't have that much money. So um, speaking of the podcast, should we talk about what we're talking about? Yeah, today or we what? should. Uh, we should introduce the album. So yes, sir. Uh, this week, well, every week on Misfits on Vinyl, we review an album. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of our favorites or an album that we think is pretty cool. This week, 
one of my personal favorites. I'm super excited to talk about this one. It is Chet Baker's Sings It Could Happen to You. Mm-hmm. Woo-hoo! Woo! All right. Nice. Good placement. That was that was solid. Um, okay. So, uh, this, uh, uh, this album was released November 3rd, 1958. Mm-hmm. It was recorded in August of 58. Uh, good year. Good year. Good year. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Great year. Great year. One of the best years. One um, of the best years. One of the best years. <laughs> um, Riverside Records, uh, who was the company that released it, uh, they were an American jazz record company and label, and they played a huge role in uh, jazz for that decade. Mm-hmm. They recorded with everyone from like Miles Davis to Nat King Cole. Like it was, it, they 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 kind of had their hands in all of the different elements of jazz at the this time. This was right in like I'd say. Right in the, the, I guess, coming towards the tail end, but also, like, still where jazz was really, really popular. Yeah. Um, the jazz man was still a thing. Um, you know, the, the, some of the biggest musicians were jazz men. So this was kind of right in that peak time for jazz, and the it, 30s, 40s, 50s. It was, like, right when, like, jazz uh, was no longer the enemy either. Mm-mm. Like, you know, like, rock and roll was yeah, now kinda, the... Yeah, kind of skirted. Yeah, in. they were the bad boys. Which then. is something I was talking about with, with Sarah. Was like, surprisingly, like, the bad boys of, like, the 40s and the early 50s were, like, playing, like, the softest, most, like, <laughs> fucking relaxing music. <laughs> and, they're, and then they're in their free time, they're shooting up heroin and fucking alcoholics. Girl. I want to take you on a date. Scoobity boo boo doop boo doo. You make me feel so young. <laughs> it's like he's actually singing about heroin, I think, in that song. <laughs> but, like, it's so funny that the bad boys of the time were singing, like, really, like, contemporary, relaxing music. Like, shit you hear in elevators. <laughs> like, it's really fucking funny. Dude, this is stuff that, like, hospitals play. Yeah, I know. When you, when you call, when you call, like, a company and they put you on hold, it's like <laughs> some of the shit they put on. Yeah. Oh, fuck. Okay, so uh, back to the album. It's an album of covers of pop songs done jazz with a real melancholy to his vocals and generally upbeat lyrics. It's good, easy listening, like we said. Uh, And amazing trumpeting, which was what he was known for. Um, So it was listed on Billboard's long play albums under jazz. Only three categories at the time on the Billboard charts. Wow. It was popular jazz and classical, and they had only started the top 200 two years prior. Mm. Um, okay, three of the songs on this album, Do It the Hard Way, My Heart Stood Still, and Dancing on the Ceiling, were originally written by Roger, uh, Richard, Richard Rogers, an American composer who made uh, dramatic musicals that focused more on the characters than previous musicals. He wrote 42 Broadway musicals and composed over 900 songs between Damn. 1919 and 1979. Wow. He was also the first person to win an EGOT. Mm. Oscar, Emmy, Grammy. Tony. Tony. Nice. He fucking did it. Uh, so uh, he also co-wrote The King and I, Sound of Music, and Oklahoma. Mm. So super interesting that he was a part of that. Uh, like, you know, not uh, hands-on, but, you know, that his songs were covered in, in a way by, uh, uh, as we've already mentioned, the bad boy. Of, uh, <laughs> the bad boy of the jazz. The bad boy of jazz. <laughs> the jazz man. The jazz man. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Uh, the piano on the... <laughs> the jazz man. The jazz man. The jazz man. I can do jazz as best as you can. I'm the jazz man. I'm the jazz man. I'm the jazz man. Jazzy man. You know what? You know what type of tea I like? Jazz man. You know what my girlfriend's name is? Jazz. Well, it's man. actually Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just testing you, dude. You missed. You missed hard. <laughs> Anyways. Okay. Anywho, it's gonna be. I think it's gonna be one of those. <laughs> you know what? I'm all for it. I we, fucking love it. Yeah, we both had hard weeks. We both had hard weeks. Yeah. Fuck yeah. You gotta let loose. Fucking. You, you gotta wank off a little bit. Yeah. Sure, dude. That's what we did before the episode. That's true. Yeah. You know the one episode we stood in a circle and we whacked each other on, with the ruler on the peepees yeah and uh before this episode we stood in a circle and we just we just whacked each other whacked each other's <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> over a cookie yeah over a cookie now my next acting role is in blue mountain state ah! yeah no <laughs> who uh okay so this is a contest for the podcast who do you think ate the cookie anyways <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> we're a bunch of bad boys. You know why? Because we're jizz man. Jizz man. <laughs> Even better, dude. Oh, I stepped on your punchline. That was good. That was good. I'm sorry. I, I stomped on your, your punchline. Okay. I deserve that. Uh, okay, I like so that one, though. The, the piano was done by Kenny Drew, whose playing style was described by the bio, biographical encyclopedia of jazz as Ooh. precise and a combination of bebop influence melodic improvisation and block, uh, block chords, including refreshingly subtle harmonizations. Previously, he recorded two albums with John Coltrane, who was a Jazz Hall of Fame inductee and Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award winner. Uh, so between 1955 and 57 uh, and 75, he recorded 20 albums with Dexter Gordon. Uh, now Dexter Gordon, this is super interesting. His father was one of the first black doctors in Los Angeles, and Duke Ellington was one of his patients. Ooh, and uh, so uh, he was a, a jazz musician who worked with everyone from like Nat King Cole, Louis Armstrong, etc. Uh, and he was an early influence of Coltrane's, which is super crazy that he then, you know, uh, like uh, uh, speaking of, uh, you know, Kenny Drew, there's like a lot of connections to uh, John Coltrane there. Mm. Uh, Kenny himself recorded and released 46 of his own albums. Damn, dude. That was ones where he was the lead man, not even the side man. Wow. Which I guess that's something that we should probably explain. So in jazz, uh, because there would be like a, a, a quartet or a, uh, or a trio or mm -hmm. whatever. There would be a lead man. It wouldn't be like necessarily a lead singer like Miles Davis and Chet Baker for a lot of their careers. They weren't even singing. Yeah. So you have uh, you have the lead man and that's like basically the headliner who everyone's like, oh, this is the guy that we're coming to see. So 46 of the albums, he was the lead man. on. That's crazy, which dude. is fucking insane. That's one thing I kind of noticed about jazz in general there's quite a bit like most of the artists have quite a bit of albums they pump out a lot of music yeah whether they are like we said the lead man or they're a part of a quartet they're always recording it's pretty incredible well and like how many of these songs do you think that they would have in their rotation regularly like mm. a lot of them are improvised in the studio yeah <clears throat> which is i guess is like if you know like even in like they talk about it in La La Land is how that's the beauty of jazz is the improvisation that you could, you know, everything could be different every night. They could be playing the exact same, you know, song at the start. And then when they start improvising, it gets crazy. Yeah. yeah it's like something that doesn't happen much in other styles of music, a little bit in some experimental rock bands, like the Grateful Dead does a lot of mm. uh, improvising in their shows, but jazz is known for it. It's one of the main, main things of jazz. It's pretty fucking cool. The Grateful Dead also changes their set list every fucking night. I know. Which is wild. And if you see them like two nights in a row, you can hear the same song, but played completely fucking different. Which is so crazy. Yeah. Which, uh, so I'll tell you something later, actually, but I might. Uh, I am going to New York in June. Ooh! And Dead and Company is playing. I'm trying to get my hands on some tickets. So oh, that would be go, so sick. Yeah, John Mayer is leading them now, but Bob Weir is still in it, and a couple of the original members are still in it. Oh shit! But, yeah, John Mayer sings sings all the tunes in it, so that'd be really fucking. That'd sick. be really it's fucking. At, it's cool. at the City Field, so where the Mets play. Hell yeah! Yeah, this will be fu pretty fucking. Fuck, sick. dude, that's awesome. Yeah, if I can go, I'd be wicked. Okay, so. Another another person who is uh, super influential, excuse me, on this album. Uh, drums for ten of the tracks were done by Philly Joe Jones, who Miles Davis stated was his favorite drummer. Drummer, and he looked for Joe's style and other drummers when they played. Uh, the other tracks had drummer Danny Richmond, who later drummed for Joe Cocker and Elton John. That's cool. Which is fucking. The drums are great on this too. Like, oh I mean, yeah. Also one of the main components of jazz is the the style of drumming but the drums really stand out in this the drums are like the drums and uh and, and like honestly like the the some of the like freestyle piano mm -hmm. things are just insane um okay so it was produced by riverside record founder bill grower who was influential in jazz and worked with all the big names including miles davis and duke ellington he has over 362 production credits to his name. Wow. Which is nuts. And then it was engineered by Jack Higgins, who seemed to work exclusively in jazz. He also had, like, uh, I think it was 177, mm. uh, like, credits as an engineer. Uh, on a few tracks on It Could Happen to You, 
Chet Baker plays no trumpet whatsoever, opting to scat in place of an instrumental solo, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. He was known for the trumpet, and uh, I'm, I, when we get into the artist, I'll talk about this a little bit more, but he was known for the trumpet, and uh, he actually, this was the second album that he sang on. The first album Chet Baker sings was the one that had his very famous rendition of My Funny Valentine, yep. and uh, he always has this like haunting fucking essence to his vocals, which is super impressive. But then it's really funny when you hear a song where he's like, I really liked his voice. I was impressed. Um, it kind of like, I mean, I guess in, in I was like, oh, it reminds me of like Lou Reed's voice. Mm. Um, but obviously Lou Reed sounds like him, not, not vice versa. Right. Cause yeah, Lou yeah. Reed was around after, but yeah, I kind of, I like his tone of voice. Like the tone of it reminded me quite a bit of Lou Reed. It's he's singing, but it's almost got a little bit of a talking sort of tone to it as well. In certain aspects. I really, really liked his voice. It's so reserved. Mm-hmm. Like you listen to it and you're just like, like he, like even when he does let loose on a note, it's still pretty fucking like toned down. I really like how well he pairs with the music like just like he it almost is like a back and forth sort of like he really like adds quite a bit to the music he plays doesn't sound like he's working against it or anything like that or it just the way his voice suits it so perfectly yeah and it's crazy that he like that he wasn't a singer before no that. no like, and it's a, it, i don't even think it like one thing shocked me too it didn't remind me really of a classic voice either mm-hmm. like it's something you could hear and like if you were to just say switch styles of music with it like i could see it being in like a like an like a indie rock band or a folk band or something like that his style his style of singing like it really transferred over really well to modern music didn't feel like i was listening to like a classic singer mm-hmm. um or like a schooner or something like that. the regular sort of old school style of singing in, in vocals well and it's also like like for a for a jazz musician i think at the time you know like a lot of us think of like big band right yeah. if you think of a singer you think of like a frank sinatra mm-hmm. or, or like uh, uh, fucking uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Like you're you're thinking of somebody that's singing like that, right? You're not thinking about like somebody who's who's taking it uh, down so much that the audience has to pay attention. It's subtle, and I really, yeah. really, really liked it. I was surprised because I wasn't as familiar as you are. You've listened to it before. I've heard the name, but I wasn't familiar. I never really listened to any of his music, so it really took me off guard when I listened to the opening track. Well, what I think is really funny is, so I remember, like, because I had this album when we lived in Toronto, mm-hmm. and I, I remember I showed it to you, and then you showed me uh, Daniel Johnston. Yeah. And it was like, it, like, there is a little bit of a similarity in that mm-hmm. they're not – like what you would think is a classically like like a classic singer, yeah. But there's so much like emotion, even when the words aren't his own, mm-hmm. that they just fucking it, it plays through. No, so I was well. I was really impressed. Yeah, I, I do remember us listening to that, and like at that time, that's why I showed you, Dan. I was really into like the outsider style of music. Like, yeah, yeah. Into the Daniel Johnsons, I was listening to like different styles of country music and things like that. But this really stood out as is unique. It's a unique for the time, I think. And, um, and like honestly, ta- like you mentioned, tail end of jazz. Yeah. Like this is like tail end of when it was like really popular. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk about Chet Baker himself. So he was born December twenty third, nineteen twenty nine, in Yale, Oklahoma. He's known for major innovations in cool jazz that led him to get, uh, to have the nickname Prince of Cool, which nice. is super fucking cool. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, find another adjective. No, cool. Cool. <laughs> um, his father was a professional guitarist, and his mother was a pianist who worked in a perfume factory. Due to the Great Depression, his father, although very talented, had to quit music and take up a regular job. In 1940, when Baker was 10, his family relocated to Glendale, California. He began his musical career singing in a church choir. So he did have, like, singing experience mm-hmm. way before, you know, he was he was singing on albums. Um his, his father gave him a trombone uh, when he was young, which was replaced with a trumpet uh, because the trombone was way too big for him, <laughs> uh, which is maybe one of the best things that could have happened because after two weeks, there was a notable, noticeable progression in his uh, playing. Um, peers called Baker a natural musician to whom playing came effortlessly. He received some musical education at Glendale High School, but he left school at the age of 16 in 1946 to join the U.S. Army. He was assigned to Berlin, Germany, where he joined the 298th Army Band. 
now, after leaving the Army in 1948, he studied music theory and harmony at El Camino College in Los Angeles, but he dropped out during his second year to re-enlist. He became a member in the 6th Army Band at the Presido in San Francisco, and he spent his time in clubs such as Bop City and Blackhawk. Now, he was discharged from the Army in 1951 and decided to pursue a career in music. Now, what I want to mention about this, because I, I read this both in his autobiography and in the documentary I watched this week. He, uh, he got discharged from the Army because uh, he wanted to pursue music, but he couldn't mm. fucking just get out of it, right? Like, yeah. it, So he went to the Army psychiatrist, and he needed to find a way that he could... Uh, get out because he was crazy, but not too crazy that mm. they wouldn't let him roam the streets. So what he did was uh, when everybody would be taking a shit in the latrines, he'd go across the street and shit <laughs> in the bushes. <laughs> <laughs> That's fucking funny. <laughs> and, then, and then the like the, the person was like, why are you doing this? And he's like, I just don't want to sit with other people while I poop. And they were like, you can't be in the <laughs> army. <laughs> You're done, son. You're done, son. <laughs> <laughs> no more shitting in the bushes. No more poop in the bush for See, you. I'm going to remember this. If something is to go down and I get drafted, I'm fucking taking my sock and heading to the bushes. Yeah. <laughs> Tell you what. I'm going to wipe it and then put it back on. Yeah. <laughs> Even better. That might, they might send you to military jail, dude, if you do that. <laughs> dude, that's cruel punishment for the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> stick it on a stick. Fucking outside. You know, the, <laughs> fucking, uh, apocalypse now. They got the heads on the stick. You just got a shitty sock on a stick <laughs> it's intimidation intimidation factor dude, dude it'd, be like, it'd be like did you ever watch ed ed and eddie no i never oh ed ed and eddie yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. it'd be like plank but it's a shit sock <laughs> you're like sock <laughs> if anybody if anybody listening in the u.s government need any ideas for torture at guatamano bay <laughs> shit sock shit sock I'm telling you fuck, shit sock fuck on a waterboarding stick. fuck waterboarding shit sock on a stick i'm telling you i'm telling you holy fuck patent that shit dude that's a great idea <laughs> great idea dude and like the best thing is is like that's the type of torture where like you could have somebody in a cage and you just stick the stick in yeah. and you poke them with the shit stick. And if you want to take it up like another level, like make sure you give someone that's lactose intolerant like <laughs> fucking some serious cheese, dude. <laughs> and then you fucking let, like give them stinky cheese. It's gonna double the stink. I'm telling you, dude. That would be my shits. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I have a problem with lactose too. <laughs> we don't get along. <laughs> okay, so uh, <laughs> moving. <laughs> <laughs> Gordita Crunch. <laughs> you know what I love about Taco Bell? It's the same going out as it is going in. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, after he left the army, he performed with Vito Musso and Stan Getz before being chosen by Charlie Parker for a series of West Coast engagements. That's sick. Charlie Parker's fucking awesome. Dude. Fucking incredible. Yeah, that's cool. In 1952, he joined the uh, Jerry Mulligan Quartet and attracted considerable attention because rather than playing identical uh, melody lines in unison, uh, they would just complement each other and counter counterpoint each other mm. with like, and they would anticipate what the other one's going to do. So their whole thing would be improvised and they'd have two people like just going fucking ham on the trumpet. That's sweet. Which is pretty cool. Uh, so my funny Valentine, which uh, was a, a solo with Baker, it became a hit, but it became associated with Chet Baker and then mm -hmm. he recorded it. Excuse me. Later, uh, with the quartet, Baker was regularly performing at uh, Los Angeles jazz clubs such as the Hague and the Tiffany Club. Now, in 1952, Jerry Mulligan was arrested on drug charges, so Chet formed his own quartet. Now, it's interesting because something that I found out in the documentary, uh, it, there was a little bit of jealousy from Jerry Mulligan because Chet Baker was such a good trumpeter, mm. and he was getting a lot of the attention in, uh, in like basically anywhere that they would go. He was kind, of, and he was he was really fucking good looking too. Like he had that James Dean good look, so oh, yeah. it was like. It was kind of like he had everything. He had the talent. He had the looks. He mm. had the charm. So he was a lead man, but he was the side man. And, you know, as you know, like, if you have a fucking supporting actor that can outshine the fucking lead, 
you have problems you have problems yeah no i hear you that's something like we don't have to to worry about because we're both untalented and not handsome so yeah we don't really have any jealousy issues dude we're get to know you people we know what we are we know where we stand but that's cool i don't know if you you put it down because i don't always we don't I always read through i like to be surprised but he did do some movies as well because he, he did was recognized for his good looks he was yes yeah, he uh, had a chiseled jawline and fucking i actually i actually have that down uh in like Two beats here. There you go. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rip through these other Look things. How so natural that is. He what he forms a quartet, released popular albums between '53 and '56. He won the readers' poll at Metronome and Downbeat magazines, beating out trumpeters Miles Davis and Clifford Brown. In 1954, readers named him the top jazz vocalist, and Pacific Jazz Records released Chet Baker sings, which increased his popularity and drew some criticism because people were not. Like, at the time, they were like, oh, I don't like how he sings. Mm. Which, you know, as we know now, like, we've talked about it, he's got a fucking great voice and, yeah. and uh, very unique. A little ahead of his time, I think. So, he made his acting debut there you go. in the film Hell's Horizon, which was released in the fall of 55. It was a war film that was panned for its plot. Uh, now, what I think is really interesting about it, he actually had, like, you know, the the, the history in the army. So, like, he, he mm-hmm. knew the role. Like, he knew the character and everything. I watched the movie. It's not that bad. It's like, like it's typical of, like, 50s yeah. fucking B-movies, you know? Um, what I think is really funny is there's a scene in it, though, where, like, he's playing the trumpet because they <laughs> had yeah, to fucking yeah, make him play the trumpet. Uh, he's playing the trumpet, and this young kid wants him to play the trumpet, and then this old guy gets up, and he's all pissed off, and he's like, fucking stop playing the trumpet. <laughs> um <clears throat> something that uh, was really interesting, he declined a studio contract, though, because he wanted to tour as a musician. Yeah, I read that, too. Yeah, yeah. that was interesting. Um, I have a quick question. Was it is, is it better or worse than, like, you ever see Hacksaw Ridge? Oh, uh, it's better than Hacksaw okay, Ridge. One thing I always like to talk about when more movies come up is the ridiculous scene where Andrew Garfield, like, soccer volleys a grenade in Hacksaw Ridge. <laughs> <laughs> Someone throws a grenade, he gets up, and he fucking, like, kicks that shit at midair. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's that, fucking so funny. I so always, dumb. If I have an opportunity to bring that up, I bring it up, because that was, like, nominated for Oscars. It's just, like, fucking movie sucks. It dude. was not a good movie. No, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson directed that bad boy. He's uh, not a good director. No, we're a good person. We're he's a good got, person. He's got the same Kanye problem. Yeah, he's got the... But you know what? Like, what if all those canceled people, like, got together and made a movie? It'd be really, really... It'd be some really good Nazi propaganda. Yeah, yeah it would. It would. It, like, Kanye West might play Jesus in a fucking remake of Passion of the Christ. Um, okay. Jesus walks. <laughs> yeah, it, right? I would kill him. Jesus <laughs> walks with me, with me, with he, me. With I, you me. just know, too, he wouldn't be able to read the fucking lines. No, dude, he'd go off on a tangent. He'd be like, I am Jesus Christ. I'm so happy that I'm Jesus Christ. I'm here for your sins. Just like, oh, Jesus, man. Well, um, at least he'd have something to actually blame on the Jews. Because oh, they did. my God. <laughs> they did, oh. in fact, crucify Christ. So. Fucking hell. <laughs> oh. Was it the Jews or was it the Romans? It was the Romans. It was the Romans, yeah. Yeah. I'm not. I went to Catholic school, but I did not follow. That's fair. Yeah, I, I was, did not follow. I, I was an altar boy, so I I got I got like stupid biblical knowledge. So it was the Romans, or it what? was the Romans? Mm. Yeah. Which like, sorry, Judaism sorry, was at the time uh, like a huge religion, obviously, uh, and he was like trying to get Jewish people to follow his religion and basically like take what they were teaching yeah. and go further with it. Um, but because of the the backlash with that, uh, you know, it was like it, they were like, fuck no. But the Romans were the ones that killed him. Oh, damn. Yeah. Um, OK, so something I got to mention about <laughs> Chet Baker. Go ahead. Uh, so this is like uh, this is like uh, what I thought was really interesting. He had like the exact same smile as me. Mm. Like we both had fucked up teeth. And uh, uh, I thought it was really cool because there's movies like in in a lot of the movies like he's missing fucking teeth but he's like this handsome guy so like you don't even like notice it but i'm like what a fucking sign of the times like you know like i would have been a fucking movie star in the 50s oh dude if you go back and look at some of like the old movie stars from the 30s 40s and 50s like some of them are fucking ugly dude there's a couple of like the dudes that are like oh yeah like they're they're like handsome dudes like young marlon brando yeah. and james deed and shit like that but some of them are not good looking dude, the women I, were always good looking who and beautiful. i named after 
Spencer Tracy. Yeah. Kind of a weird looking dude. Yeah, there's a couple of them that were not like fucking Clark Gable with the mustache. <laughs> like, you know, there, a couple of them were weird looking motherfuckers. A couple of them were very strange. Yeah. Okay, so drugs for him started in the 50s. Yeah. And this is something that I read in his autobiography. He would sometimes pawn his instruments to go and get drug money. So uh, he's never had the same trumpet for like a like for no like, he he like, had serious fucking drug problem he had dude serious yeah, drug problems like and it's bad. crazy because like reading about it in his autobiography he he even uh, like you know at the time that he wrote that I think it was like the the early eighties it was a memoir not an autobiography but it's an easy read if anybody wants to like read it I would say do it because I read it in like two nights before mm-hmm. bed um, he. Talks about it with such a fucking, like, uh, romanticized, like, rose-colored glasses. Yeah. Like, he would be like, yeah, like, I'd be playing the jazz club and there'd be an arrest warrant out for me. So I'd hop out through the back door, get in the car, and go to another club. (laughs) And you're just like, what the fuck? Well, the problem is, is he probably, well, I know he wrote that memoir. He was still fucking using drugs. Mm -hmm. Like, literally his whole life he fucking used drugs. He never stopped. No. Which is is also crazy when when we get to, like, this this bit in a second here. But soon after signing with uh, Riverside Records, Baker was arrested twice. The first arrest involved uh, a stay at the Lexington uh, Hospital and then imprisonment at Rikers Island for four months on drug charges. He was also imprisoned in Italy for a year on drug charges and expelled and extradited from the UK and Germany on drug charges. Now, the one in Italy, he had left uh, one of his partners. Uh, mm. He had he had multiple, like, he was, uh, he, it seemed like he was always monogamous, but he would fucking leave people really quickly. Yeah. Uh, he left someone for this Italian woman and she waited like while he was in prison she waited for him for a year he gets out they have a kid uh like he had a lot of kids like he mm. had a fuck ton of kids uh like he had like five kids i think um it's like nba basketball player numbers uh, dude yeah dude yeah. he was fucking putting up the he was putting up those points yeah he was <laughs> <laughs> um okay so now in 1966 this is like the this is where it gets crazy Baker was beaten, probably while attempting to buy drugs, after performing mm-hmm. at the Trident restaurant in Sausalito. That's in California, I think. Yeah. Sausalito. Uh, in the film uh, Let's Get Lost, he said that an acquaintance attempted to rob him, but backed off, only to return the next night with a group of men who chased him. He fucking ran and got into a car that was parked on the street. These guys all surrounded the car, and then the people inside the car fucking threw him out of the car. Like, they were like, no, fucking get out. Mm-hmm. So these guys just beat the fuck. Like, it, literally all these guys had to do was drive away. Yeah, this was like the the big turning point in his life. It mm-hmm. seems to be the big moment in his life where everything kind of went downhill until a little later on where he had a bit of a resurgence. But, like, this is where the drug use and, you know, the constant years of, like, living the fast life kind of caught up with him. They they definitely did. And and it was uh, it, it was heavy hitting because he was literally going to buy drugs and then fucking... And the consequence of this was he lost all of his teeth. Yep. And he couldn't play the trumpet anymore. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he, he received cuts. Several of his teeth were knocked out. But, like, as in several, we mean pretty much all of them. Yeah. Like, uh, and then... Uh, okay, this incident has often been misstated or otherwise exaggerated, partially because of his own unreliable testimony on the matter. Now, it's interesting because in the documentary and in the book, he had two different accounts of, of the incident, which is fucking... So there's certainly probably more to the story, like yeah. whether or not he like ripped somebody off or whatever it may be. I, I feel like there's more to the story than I, what he's saying. Yeah, I feel like I feel like there definitely is. Um, so uh, the breaking of his teeth ruined his uh embrosure which made like you said he was unable to play the trumpet and uh after the mugging uh his jaw was reshaped he had to reteach himself the trumpet uh and okay so this is a quote that you brought up which was from npr right mm-hmm. 2016 article from npr where they talk about his career later on and kind of what happened after the incident mm-hmm. um and how it changed him okay so He's more breathy at times, and the tone carries a certain richness. When he opens his mouth, the true mood dawns. This is the voice of a 57-year-old who sounds like he's lived, in, uh, he's lived enough, 
and been heard enough to be 80. When Baker sings, all the things that you promised with your eyes, I see in hers too. You wonder how many nights he spent looking at himself in the mirror, wondering where the promise in his own eyes had gone. Now, uh, it's so depressing Mm -hmm. because, like, uh, listening to his older stuff, like, specifically in the documentary, Let's Get Lost, he, you can still hear a little bit of it, but dentures weren't really good at the time. No. And uh, so he kind of sounds like when my grandma tries to sing. <laughs> she's got the dentures in her mouth. And so it's like, he's like, he's singing and it is beautiful, but there is that, like, yeah. you hear it, right? This was specifically about, <coughs> like, in the 80s when he was doing some stuff with uh, Elvis Costello and things like that. That was kind of from that time period that they were talking about in this article about Chet Baker. And, and Elvis Costello context. was a huge fan. Yeah, and he, they were buddies, and Elvis kind of helped him. Um, I, know, I know we'll touch on it, but he kind of had a bit of a resurgence uh, in the late, late, well, early 80s, late 80s, right before he died. Um, and that kind of was a part of that, and that's what that article is talking about for a little more context. Um, but, yeah, I thought it was a really poignant quote yeah um, that kind of describes like you know wonder if he looks back i'm sure he did looks back on his life and thinks about where he went wrong and looked in the mirror and the turns he took and the mistakes he made and, and wonders well and i i wonder though if there is any of that uh, I'll, I'll get to it a little bit later but there I, I i really wonder if there is any of that uh like if there is regret in yeah. in in him but well, it's a like he did release good music and this album's a fantastic listen, but there, I wonder how much more there could have been if yeah. he had either like, you know, stayed clean, stayed out of trouble, whatever it may be. Like it certainly probably adds to the music to a certain point, but once it started taking away from his career and ruining his, his life, you, you wonder if he, if he, he never had that wake up call that a lot of artists that were similar had and continue, yeah. and then, you know, switched their life around or changed it up. He never had that wake-up call. Well, and it, it's interesting because that was before a lot of artists had wake-up calls. Like, yeah. I think he was a learning lesson for a lot of them. And it happens you know? with, I mean, it happens with so many people. Like, fucking, if you look at comedians, you look at Lenny Bruce and Richard Pryor and all these people that were all addicted to drugs. Musicians, same sort of thing. A lot of these jazz men we were talking about, same sort of deal. So it, it's, it's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunate. Okay, so uh, during uh, I'm gonna go back for a second. Yeah, go ahead. Um, During most of the '60s, he actually played flugelhorn and recorded music that could be classified as West Coast jazz. Now, there was a difference because East Coast was more big band; it was more Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. It was the it was the Rat Pack. It was the cool kids, right? Uh, But it was like the it was like the prep kids, right? Whereas West Coast was a bunch of people that were just getting together, making fucking music that they thought would sound cool. Um, he also acted in, uh, a bunch of Italian films. So he was fluent in Italian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, uh, the movie Howlers in the Dock, which was a musical comedy alongside, uh, Elkie Summer, who was known for the Pink Panther sequel and one of the biggest actresses in the sixties. He also played himself in the 1963 British film Stolen Hours, which is a remake of the 1939 Betty Davis film Dark Victory. It's about a neurotic jet setting socialite. Diagnosed with a brain tumor and told she only has a year left to live. She falls in love with Dr. John uh, Carmody and then struggles to turn her life around before she dies. So he was playing like he was he was doing these weird movies. Mm-hmm. There were like there, there was a lot of comedy in a lot of the stuff that he was doing. Wow. I watched this one Italian film that he did where, like, he's in a bathtub at one point and, like, he's passed out and uh, this guy, like, won't shut up. And then he's like, he, he literally, it's dubbed in English and he's like, shut up, old man. <laughs> it's just fucking, like, really funny. That part wasn't actually scripted. That was just, <laughs> that was just he was just fucking Yeah, they, just, they just went to his house and filmed them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after the accident, though. Like, or after he got the fuck beat yeah, out of him, beat up. Um, he worked at a gas station for three years until concluding that he needed to find a way back into music. So what's really interesting about this, nobody recognized him. Like, nobody recognized him at the gas station. He was one of the biggest fucking, like, like he was, like, uh, I would say probably about the same size as, like, what the Arkells are yeah, now, like you know? Fa- fairly known. Fairly known. Not everybody, but, like, the mm-hmm. the, the scene that he's in, no. Well, his, his, he looked different, too, after. Like, he had a bit of a... He physically looked different. Yeah. So that was probably also had something to do with it as well. That definitely like, did not help. <laughs> no, because like his, like you said, his jaw 
shape had changed and and also um, the gas station got robbed too which is crazy yeah he got, he got robbed well at the gas station at one point um which i read in his book um okay so after developing a new a brochure he, he resulting from dentures uh he returned to the straight ahead jazz that began his career he moved to new york and began performing and recording again including <clears throat> with guitarist jim hall baker returned to europe in the 70s with his friend diane ver uh, vavra whom he had an on-again, off-again relationship uh, since 1970. She accompanied him and remained with him during the last years of his life. She went on to take care of his day-to-day needs, helping him with personal care as well as uh, with his recording and performance work. There's some really dark, haunting stuff of him in the recording studio yeah. like near the end of his life where he can't find the tune. Mm. And he's getting mad at the band, and she's sitting there, and she actually like helps him get into it. Like, wow. helps him find the pitch. Um, in 1983, Elvis Costello, longtime fan, hired him to play a solo on his song Shipbuilding for the album Punch the Clock. In his last few years, he lived in Europe and barely went to the States. And on, early on May 13th, 1988, Baker was found dead on the street below his room in uh, Hotel Prince Hendrick, Amsterdam, with serious wounds to his head, apparently having fallen from the second story window. Heroin and cocaine were found in his room and in his body. No evidence of a struggle was found, and the death was ruled as an accident. According to another account, though, he inadvertently locked himself out of his room and then fell while attempting to cross the balcony of a vacant room adjacent to his own. A plaque is placed outside of the hotel in his memory. Now, what's super crazy about that is that was four months before the documentary of his life came out. Wow. Now, here's what I'm going to, like, uh, this is the thing to wrap up about him, like, about his life before we get into notable tracks. Um, He had, uh, in the, at the end of the documentary, there's a really crazy moment where he's sitting there talking to the the director, and uh, the director tells him, like, yeah, we we got your methadone prescription sent here, because they're at the Cannes Film Festival, Mm -hmm. and he's playing, like, a gig there, right? And uh, they're like, yeah, we got your methadone prescription sent here so that, like, you know, you're going to be fine. And he's like, you know, these last few days have been really hard. And then uh, uh, he pauses for a second and he goes, you know, you want me to be truthful and honest with you. And I'm I'm really trying, but I don't want to put that much hurt on another human being. Mm. And I was like, fuck. And that's how the documentary ends, dude. Man, it's sad. That's like, so the sad. The ending of his life and, like, probably the last, like, well, ever since the he got beat up, the whole that whole part of his life is just sad. So sad. Like he literally like when it fell out a little bit into obscurity, and then he came back had a little bit of a comeback. But just the way he was living his life, having to have somebody help him with his daily tasks, and like you know, actually function as a human being is just sad. Like it's a sad existence, dude. For it's him. insane. Too. Someone with so much potential, <clears throat> like it really is. It's a bummer. And he he had he had everything. He had the fucking he had the movie career. He had the the yeah. He could have been in movies. He could have yeah. been you know what like he he's not. I don't think if he had. Committed more to music and stayed away from the extracurriculars, which is, I mean, hard to do. Obviously, has had some pain in his life that's causing that. He could have been, you know, way more known, way more famous. Yeah. You know. And, and like, it's crazy that, like, I feel like we're introducing people to him. A little bit, podcast. too. Well, you you introduced me to him. Like, I was not, like, we listened to the record the one time we were living in Toronto, but it was totally a fresh listen yeah. to me this time through. So, I, you know, it's sad. It makes me sad, like, that. That someone that you know could have been so much is waste waste of potential bums you out. So that's a that's a bit of the bummer of his life, I that, guess. That kind is of the, the main bummer. the main theme of his. That's the fucking the second half of his life is it, like fucking waste of potential. Yeah. Um. But let's get back into the positives. Yes. Notable track list and notable singles. Mm-hmm. All right. My personal favorite is Everything Happens to Me. I like that song. It is as well. so good. I, I discovered this is partially how I discovered him. Uh, it, it was in uh, I was in a play and that was the only song that was played in the whole play. Mm, what play uh, was that? It was called Bonds. And I played a man that was uh, who had HIV, whose partner had died of AIDS. Mm. Uh, so it was a it was a heavy piece uh, piece. And the whole play ended with me reading a fucking poem on stage and crying. Very heavy. Anyways, everything happens to me. Great yeah. song. Uh, I uh, it was composed by Tom uh, Adar, 
who is a future Academy and Emmy Award nominee with lyrics by Matt Dennis. Uh, and it was originally recorded with Frank Sinatra in the 40s. Uh, I heard the Frank Sinatra version not nearly as good. Doesn't mm-hmm. have like the same hit to it. Doesn't have the same no. punch to it. Because, um, you know, uh, it, it, like not that Frank Sinatra probably didn't have a, a hard life, but definitely not as hard. No. And, and like you can hear in the lyrics in this like how hard he is. So other people who covered this uh, include Nat King Cole, Billie Holiday, and Timothy Chalamet in the 2019 Woody Allen film A Rainy Day in New mm. York. Um, now, uh, <laughs> <laughs> really had to throw that in. Hey? I really did. We, we got to talk about at least three toxic people each episode. Yeah, okay? there you go. We got, we got we've our touched, three. We've touched Mel Gibson, we've Kanye done, West, Woody Allen. Yeah, we got it. Uh, so it's a melancholic song about, uh, nothing working out and taking it all with a laugh though. My favorite line in the song is I telegraphed and called and sent an email, uh, or an airmail special to your answer was goodbye. And there was even postage too. I'm like, <laughs> Oh, that's so fucking harsh. Like, Oh God! You you're gonna you have to pay to mm-hmm. get fucking heartbroken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back in the day you had to, <laughs> you had to pay, the, pay the fucking postage. <laughs> That's so fucking funny. Okay, so now the the uh, another another track on this uh, that I thought was really interesting. The more I see you was originally mm-hmm. sung by Dick Hames in the 1945 film Diamond Horseshoe. The film was very successful when it was released, but because of its high cost, it struggled to make a profit. <laughs> it had a budget of $2.6 million. This is without inflation. Uh, and its box office was $3.15 million. So that would have been insane because, like, that's a, that is a profit. That's, like, a yeah. profit of, like, $10 million in today's terms. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't lucrative in their opinion uh but chet was actually the first person to record it oh that's cool so that's pretty crazy now reception this album peaked at number 25 on the billboard charts and it spent one week there Mm. um but at the time there was like fucking hundreds of albums coming out a week that were by these record companies uh especially with jazz there was so many albums coming out that it was like people would just like the attention span like we talk about having a quick attention span now Mm -hmm. but my fucking god before rock music came around the attention span was fucking nothing (laughs) like people would just drop shit so quickly um all music gave it four and a half out of five these are all like in retrospect right uh all music gave it four and a half out of five pitchfork 8.3 out of 10 and the penguin guide to jazz recordings gave it three out of four Lindsay Planner of All Music said in her review, one uh, immediate distinction between these vocal sides and those recorded earlier in the decade for Pacific Jazz is the lysome quality of Baker's playing and, most notably, his increased capacity as a vocalist. The brilliant song selection certainly doesn't hurt either. This is a quintessential title in Chet Baker's 30-plus year canon. It was remastered and reissued twice, once in 1989 and the second time in 2010, and 2010 had four additional recordings. Mm-hmm. This one does not have those four additional recordings. So the one I was listening to on Spotify did. Yep. And he does a really, really great cover of You Make Me Feel So Young. Yes. And it is really good. And honestly, I think it's better than the Sinatra version. I think so, too. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, He's uh, like, that's the thing. He does a lot of Sinatra songs and he's honestly, he does them better a lot of the time. Yeah, it had a really nice quality to it. I enjoyed that version of it. Um yeah, that was one of the ones that, like, obviously I knew it wasn't on this this copy, but that was something I did want to talk about. I'm glad you touched on it because yeah. I really enjoyed that cover. I thought it was really, really good. So good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, just going to quickly touch on the culture at the time. So, like, uh, 1958, uh, you know, jazz is one of the most popular genres at the time. Jazz clubs were fucking everywhere. Yeah. Um, jazz culture was very beatnik-focused and, and quite liberal and progressive thinking on the West Coast. On the East Coast, it was very... Corporate clean cut, you're wearing a suit, right? Yeah. Um, Middle America was unsure about experimental jazz, like noodling. Uh, and uh, they were as unsure of that as they were with rock and roll. Chet Baker kind of falls in between the, like, the noodling and the fucking classical. Yeah. Like, he's he's got, like, kind of a distinct, like, he, he, he saw both things that were good. He mm-hmm. saw the things that were good in both and then made it better. Um, now... Uh, it kind of experienced the same sort of feeling in artists and audiences like West Coast Jazz did 
uh, as rock did in the late 60s and grunge in the early 90s. Mm. There was a very distinct group of people that liked it. Everyone else was like, nah. what the fuck is this? Yeah, this is different. Yeah. Which we touched on, too. Like, people weren't very warm to his voice and the way he sang and things like that. Yeah. So he was a little different. A little yeah. different. And then, uh, so this is the tail end of it, though. So then at this point, you know, this is where Elvis is coming out with his fucking hips. Mm-hmm. He's fucking shaking things up. He's making <laughs> making everybody a little fucking wet and hard he's doing it all right heroin marijuana reefer weed gauge and jive uh that's those are all those are all drug terms that came from jazz uh now i wanted to mention this because we talked about it with his drug addiction this is the last thing i'm gonna do before we get into the album review Mm -hmm. um so i found this uh from uh an article written or not an article. It was a, it was a, uh, a thesis written by somebody, uh, uh, at the university of Denver. It's called the connection between jazz and drug abuse, a comparative look at the effects of widespread narcotics abuse on jazz music in the forties, fifties and sixties by Aaron Olson of the university of Denver. Now, Many of the jazz musicians that were addicted rationalized that the use of heroin, cocaine, and morphine as a way of coping with life and said that the drugs enhanced their creativity and musicianship. Chet Baker, which he said Chet Davis, mm-hmm. in, in, so I just got to say, I hope you didn't get a fucking hundred on this. Um, uh, <laughs> well, it got published. Aaron so. Olsen, you fucking <laughs> you dicked that one up. Yeah, they sure did. Uh, Chet Baker's personal account of a significant portion of his life shows that the highs and lows of a gifted musician and performer that succumbed to the ravages of heroin addiction. Baker's matter-of-fact account of his successes along with his failures as well as the numerous run-ins with the law portray a man that does not seem to recognize the effects of addiction. As Baker's relatability in performance declined, his income also declined, forcing him to uh, concentrate on feeding his habit. Although Baker appears to be oblivious, the reader can clearly see the negative effects of his addiction. Mm. Which we've talked about. I, I feel like we don't need to yeah. go into it too much. No, but, but it, it basically solidified the conversation we already had. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, I don't really feel like we need to get into fun facts because we're already running pretty late on this one. How, how long are we? Just oh, we're fine. we're fine. We're oh, fine. Okay. Let's rifle it off. There's, yeah. a, there's only two or three. There's only a couple, so yeah. we're, we're good. Uh, all right. So. Aaron, your fun facts. You want to read them off to me? I don't yes. remember what I put down. Scarcely wrote his own material. Yeah, that's something we also kind of touched on. He did mostly covers. He did write a good chunk of his material in that time frame when he was in prison in Italy. Mm. Um, so that was kind of when he was writing and composing his own music. But other than that, he was just doing arrangements on and singing cover songs. So, Fuck. Yeah, so most of his stuff is covers and, you know, reworkings of already written music. That's so, fucking crazy. So there's only a short period of time where he was actually writing and composing his own music. So that's my one. In fact, I have two, don't I? Uh, yes, uh, yeah. Costello. We already talked about that. Yeah. He was buddies with Elvis Costello. He kind of helped him shoot his life up yeah, in yeah. the end of his life, try to, you know, get him back on track. And, and honestly did performing again. help him out a lot yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, my fun fact the only other notable person to come out of Yale, Oklahoma, was NFL, Major League Baseball player, Olympian, Jim Thorpe, mm-hmm. who played in all three of those. He was he, he uh, ran in the Olympics. He was like a decathlete. He played in the NFL. He played in the MLB. Mm-hmm. He was a coach in all of those. And he was also the first uh, uh, indigenous person to do that. Yeah, and when there's a crazy story about Jim Thorpe. This is just something I remembered when you mentioned him. When he ran in the Olympics, somebody stole his running shoes, and he ran and won gold with two different pairs of shoes on. He Holy had a different shit. Share of, he had a different shoe on each foot, and he won the, the gold medal. That's yeah, insane. Yeah, he was like a crazy athlete. He was a crazy human being. His life was pretty insane. Dude. He faced a lot of racism and difficulties, but he also had a really interesting life. In that. And, and he also, like... It's crazy because his coaching career and his playing career happened at the exact same time, mm-hmm. which is like now would never happen. He's probably the greatest athlete to ever live yeah. to be like a professional athlete across multiple different sports, multiple different things, going to the Olympics, playing baseball, playing football. Like he's probably the greatest athlete to ever live. Oh, a hundred percent. It's pretty fucking cool. That's so, so insane. So him and Chet Baker from the same old town. Him and Chet Baker had the same, you know, used to walk on the same ground. Two of the goats. Two of the goats. Two of the goats. <laughs> All right. Now we're going to get into the review of the album. All right. So each week we review it on technical element, musical element, lyrics, reception, album art, and does it hold up? Um, okay. So 
This one's kind of interesting because of when it was recorded. It's a little different than everything else we've touched on yeah. so far because they were doing it in like all the musicians were in at the same time. They weren't layering things. They weren't looping things. Mm-mm. So technical element, it's got to be fucking low on this one because it's it's not it. Somebody hit record. <laughs> it sounds I will say, though, the remastering, they did a really good job. So yeah. like uh, we have both we have both listened to the remastered version, but I can't imagine the original being as crystal clear because yeah. the piano, the drums and, you know, a lot of the instruments in the remaster is really sharp. Oh, my God. And his vocals so are really sharp. So, I mean, we could probably give it a mid rating if you want somewhere like a five or a six. Yeah, I was thinking like I was thinking like a six. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Um, musical element. I mean, fuck. It's. Musically, this is really impressive. Yeah, it's nice. I like it. Really nice. I would, I would go, I would go pretty high with the musical element of this. I would probably say like, I would go like eight and a half or a nine. Yeah, I'm gonna go a little bit lower. I'll I'll meet you. I'll go seven and a half. Seven and a half. We can go in between. Okay. If you want to give it a nine, we can give it. So we're at we're at a seven right now. Okay. Seven Uh, seven and a half right now. Uh, Lyrics. Uh, I mean, he didn't write them, but uh, I mean, the lyrics are good. They hold up. There's a lot of songs that have just been like, what do you mean? They hold up by Kelly. <laughs> I had to, you had to pay postage. <laughs> that I just, up. I just busting your balls. I'm just busting your balls. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to go crazy on the lyrics cause he didn't write them himself. They're cover songs. So, yeah. I, um, but I mean, if we're talking about the, the album itself, not, not the artist on mm. it, right? Like if we're reviewing the album. I would, I would give it, I would probably give it like a seven on that. Yeah, I can meet you there. Yeah. Seven sounds fair. Okay, so we're we're at a we're at a seven and a half still around there. Reception, I mean, it was received well, uh, like across the board from like critics in the future, and also at the time, I mean, it 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 charted, which is impressive. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it did have mixed reviews from audiences just because it was new and fresh. But yeah, I think in hindsight, a lot of the reviews you know, give it more positive reviews than they probably would have at the time. Yeah. Um, so like I, I, we both enjoy it. So I like, I feel like there's a midpoint we can meet on this one just because at the time it wasn't received as well as it is yeah. now. I uh, would, I would, I would probably, uh, honestly, I'd probably put it at like seven, seven and a half or eight. Yeah. I that, can you just do seven and a half. Seven and a half. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, album art, I mean, it's very of its time. It's kind of like, it, 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 like how many fucking albums looked like that at the time? Mm-hmm. It's kind quite of, a few, like, quite yeah, a few. Yeah. I mean, I would give it like a four, honestly. Yeah, four like, or five works for me. Four or five, uh, and does it hold up? I'd say yeah. I'd say it holds up. As so well. seven and a half out of ten. Yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for watching Misfits on Vinyl. Hey, thanks to for Misfits listening, on guys. Vinyl. Anal contusions. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Misfits on Vinyl, hosted by Spencer Streichert and me, Aaron Walsh, and of course produced by Sam Sam the Tech Man, Sam Lindsay. If you like us, please rate us, subscribe to us, share us. Our socials are Misfits on Vinyl Podcast on Instagram and TikTok. If you want to send us an email with any suggestions or criticisms, uh, we love that shit, so send it away. It's Misfits on Vinyl at gmail.com. We love you guys. Thank you. <laughs>